You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Voice America Radio. You are listening to The Business Channel, another episode of Your Evolving Leadership Journey with your host, Tom Crea. Each week, we invite an expert to take us on a deep dive into his or her specialty. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with change resilience expert, Leo Arusi. Before we explore his book, Next is Now, and pick his brain, a little bit about why we're here. This show is for anyone who believes in continuous learning. For example, I'm a retired Army officer, and here's my journey so far. I start my career in the infantry, where let's just say I learned some important lessons in humility. When I go to aviation, I learn to fly helicopters, where I am humbled even more. In time, I develop enough skills, and I'm finally doing what I want to do most, fly the Blackhawk. Now I'm faced with some leadership challenges. First, an important lesson, learning to empower others. Then I learn to delegate, where I have an experience that shapes how I will lead for the rest of my career. A couple of years later, I find myself in a muddy cornfield, where I'm having a heart-to-heart conversation with a junior officer. My success depends on his success. When I know he gets it, I discover that I enjoy developing leadership in others more than I do flying helicopters. I never thought that was possible. Fast forward to the end of my career, I run an ROTC program, Leadership Development, where we transform college students into combat officers. Leadership Development, it's what I love. Like you, my leadership journey continues. We are here today because I honestly believe I am a product of the best leadership culture in the world. We can debate that, but I've invested in this radio show because I've discovered that all too often people like you get thrust into a management position without any leadership training. You learn through trial and error. It doesn't have to be that way. I've taken the time to map out this schedule of experts. When I come across a great book and I know the author has similar values, I want them to share their insights with you. Professional reading is important. You might say, I don't have the time, but you know it is important. So let me let let you in on a little secret. There are a number of services that offer book summaries. I started subscribing to Soundview Executive Book Summaries so long ago, I'm afraid to tell you when, it's been decades. I enjoy reading the summaries. Now I'm meeting great authors like Lior, guests who want to help you just as much as I do. Here's what we ask in return. When you find value in our show, be sure to like, share, and spread the word. You'll find everything related to this show at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. Check out our, our schedule and see who's next. Look at the topics. Catch up on any episodes you missed and continue the discussion with like-minded individuals in our LinkedIn group. Again, you'll find everything at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. Now let's meet today's expert, 
Lior Arusi, author of Next Is Now, a book about change resilience. Lior, let me extend you a very warm welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you very much and happy Monday. Thank you. We appreciate you taking your time. And now for your li our listeners, if you have any questions, here's our call-in number, 866-472-5790. Again, our call-in number is 866-472-5790. Now you, the listener, might be asking, what's change resilience? Good question. I'll attempt to paraphrase, and of course, we'll let Lior clarify. Change is no longer an event. It's a new way of living and staying relevant. Most people believe that they are far more adept than they truly are. It's time to develop a new core competence called change resilience, which is, Lior, over to you. What is it? All right. Thank you. Change resilience is the scope and speed in which you adapt to change. Since change today is, is manifesting itself in so many ways and it's happening on a, on a regular daily basis, our ability to absorb change needs to change and evolve. If in the past we would just acquire one set of change in, in a week or two or a month or a year, uh, this is becoming the way we breathe. This is becoming the way we, we live. And in order to stay relevant both personally and professionally, organizationally and individually, the scope and speed in which we adapt to change is ultimately your change resilience. Great. Now, let's take a step back. And uh, before we can talk about change resilience, what, why is it that we fear change so much? Why is this so difficult for everyone? So this is a very interesting topic, Tom. And we've been working with uh, hundreds of organizations who are going through change resilience. We have touched over 1 million employees in their ability to uh, absorb change. And the, uh, the prevailing thinking was that people are afraid of the unknown. They're afraid to be embarrassed of trying something new that they don't know and they've never done before. There was, there was a whole school of thought around change that focused on how can we help people adapt to the future. One of the things that we actually discovered is that the, the fear of change starts much earlier, and it's actually the fear of losing your past. It's the fear of losing your legacy. Oftentimes, people are associating themselves with what they do in a very, very individualized way. So the moment you change the tools or the practice or the process that they use, they lose their identity. I remember, and I, I cited in the book, I was working with cashiers in a bank that actually shuts down their cashiers because they are going digital. And these individuals were facing an, an existential crisis because for 20 years, they were the cashiers, and now they're not the cashiers. So who are they? And part of that struggle is, are you telling me that the last 20 years of my life were a mistake? Because oftentimes, when we hear the word change, we associate that with a negative judgment on our past. So the actual issues around why we fear change has a some to do with the future, but a lot to do with the past. And most organizations and most individuals don't know how to build the bridge between the past and the future in order to make it a much more seamless and, I would say, palatable um, evolution for individuals and organizations. Yeah, I remember reading your book that that bridge was an extremely critical uh, piece of it, and, and I know we're going to get to that and, and explore it some more. Um, 
but here's here's another question that you had in your introduction that uh, I'd like you to share as well. Um, what what can you say about what makes us open to change? What helps somebody to be open to change? So when we think about change, uh, we need to understand what doesn't change first before we understand what will change. When people hear change, they assume that everything is changing. But in reality, there are actually certain things in your life that will not change and should not change. And there are certain things that you need to evolve much faster. And that's what we call the big split. Uh, I talk about the need to divide the purpose in which you do things from the tools that you're using in order to achieve that goal. And your values and your purpose should not be changing. However, the tools that you're using should be evolving and evolving very fast. So if I go back to the banker's example, I remember sitting down with her and I said, look, once upon a time, banks use abacus. And then they use those calculator with the, with the paper strip, if you remember those. And then there was a desktop, and now you have an iPad. In the same way that you never considered yourself the abacus person, you're not the iPad person. You're a person who's helping people achieve their dreams through guiding them through financial tools. It doesn't matter if your tools are evolving as long as you see that there is a continuity and a very solid bridge uh, because your values do not change. So if you stick to your value and if you stick to the impact that you make on individuals, by doing your work, uh, then that should be your refuel in order to be able to absorb change and develop a much stronger change resilience. Great, thanks. So we've been uh, listening to Leo Arusi talk to us about his book, Next Is Now, and Change Resilience. And Leo, my next question, oh, I'm sorry, and for our listeners, if you want to call in, and again, the number is 866-472-5790. So Leo, Back to your introduction, the next question I have in a big area you covered is, the biggest reason change fails is what you describe as the human factor. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we've actually done a study with Harvard Business School, and uh, we ran a benchmark across 422 different companies, and we asked them about the success of their change program. Um, we knew it sounds going to be a great number, but we didn't expect that number. 91% of them claimed that their change programs failed. If you substitute the word change with strategy or with the future, basically 91% are saying we're trying to get move forward to the future, to the next, but, but we're failing. Then we ask them, okay, what are the root causes? Is it the lack of budget? Is it the lack of time? Is it the lack of governance? None of those hit the top, the top scores. The top scores were predominantly employees don't understand why, leadership is not properly sponsoring it, uh, people are afraid uh, because, they, again, they don't understand what's happening. It was all the human factor. And, you know, when I sit down with CEOs, you know what I tell them? I tell them, with all due respect, I don't really care what you think about the program. I'd like to go and talk to Susie from accounting because your change program is going to be killed by Susie from accounting and the thousands and thousands of employees of yours who would simply kill it in a small little way. You won't even notice. You made your decision, you made your announcement, but they would just ignore it. Their fear of change, their lack of change resilience, they would just ignore it in small little ways and they will kill it a hundred small, in a hundred small ways. And that's really how organizations fail. So the human factor, when not properly um, uh, prepared for the change, is often going to resist it. And actually, I'm very surprised 
to be to see how creative they are in resisting change as opposed to opening the opportunity for that. But, you know, I'll give you a litmus test I give every organization. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars on technology. I often ask them, okay, take a look at your biggest technology transformation project you're doing right now. What percentage of that project have you dedicated to prepare your people for the change? And it's amazing how they can spend $100 million on technology adaptation, but less than $100,000 on preparing their employees. I'm like, guys, in the same way that no football will ever win the Super Bowl because you need people, your technology ain't going to work unless your people are going to care for it. And you're spending most of your time on the ball and less of your time on the players. How does that make sense? Exactly. And that was one of the points uh, which resonated and attracted me uh, when reading your book. Um, so you talked about the human factor and how important it is. And this is a huge thing for anybody who's out there who's a leader. Um, you mentioned in your intro, and we're still on the intro of this book, so there's a lot going on here. So you need to pick up this book. Anyway, in the intro, you talk about changing our lives re- actually requires that we change our behavior. So how does the leader help um, excuse me, inspire the individual to change their behavior? So first of all, I, my first advice to your listeners and to all the people that are, are engaged with us is don't use the word change, use the word evolution. Evolution respects the past, change often does not. So as a leader, start with your language, with your choice of words. Good point. Second, as, as a leader, as a leader, you need to contextualize what's in it for them. And leaders, I have to tell you, oftentimes are mirroring their first-time managers who never really engage with them on purpose. So they don't know how to create purpose. They don't know how to communicate purpose. They don't know how, and some of them, by the way, tells me that they find it to be demeaning that they need to explain their purpose to their employees because their employee's job is to just follow the rules. I mean, I had one, one, one German executive who told me, I don't understand what's wrong with stupid people who follow the rules. Why are you talking to me about purpose and empowerment? The first thing that a leader needs to do is respect that there is a need for true engagement with employees at an early stage of the change program. That's when you already did everything. That's when you already decided and all you're doing is shoving at them a whole new set of principles or, or processes or tools and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing you can do as a leader. Second thing as a leader, and this is another area that leaders are probably need to kind of develop their muscles of leadership, and that is empathy. A lot of leaders, when they look at change, they're saying, look, I don't really care what you think. This is the decision. One, two, three, four, five. That's what I need you to do. There's a change. Guess what? Approach it that way and see how far you're going to go with them. This is, the, this is the world of a KPI manager, not of a person of people, not of a leader of people. And if you understand that Tuesday from accounting can go and kill the change because you'll just ignore it and delay it and postpone it and just let it die on the vine, then you need to learn how to inspire people. And I would say to you, two critical tools. The first one is asking questions. Learn to engage with questions as opposed to with exclamation marks. And the second thing is create stories that makes people cry, that makes people you know, emotionally engage. Emotions is a great glue to connect people to the to a future. Because let's face it, whenever you want them to embrace the future, you're really building the airplane while you're flying it. 
You're asking people to, you know, with your army background, I'm sure you're familiar with VUCA, you know, with, with uncertainty, yeah. ambiguity. You ask people to believe in you while you don't have all the answers. As a leader, you need to be aware of that. That's a big ask. That's a big ask. You ask them to come with you on a journey where you don't have all the answers. So be humble about that. Share it with them openly. Tell them you're afraid as well. Tell them you'll adapt as you go. Now you're creating humanity between the two of you. And I would suggest to leaders, don't be afraid of doing that because it's your only chance to get them on board. If you're going to try to fake strength and confidence that you don't have, they're going to call your bluff faster than you can imagine. So these are some of my advice to, to leaders. Be a, be a person first before you are a leader. Don't fake leadership and confidence that you don't have. Recognize that you are asking them to step into ambiguity and uncertainty and vulnerability. Share some of it and then inspire them to have the courage to step above the fears and, and focus on the hopes. And that's ultimately at the heart of it is your ability as a leader to balance the fears with the hopes. A lot of leaders do not know how to create hopes. And therefore, they're using fears. Great. Now, you just covered two important points. And uh, one of them, you know, I'll paraphrase is getting that groundswell, getting the people to believe in the cause first and uh, that buy-in from the bottom up. And, uh, you know, I've been retired for a while, but there's a uh, current story or a recent story in the, I believe, the Navy, where the commander, a admiral, said to his soldiers, uh, look, we have, a, excuse me, his sailors, <laughs> sorry, too much army in me. Um, he said to his sailors, yeah. look, we have a problem. I need your help. So there was that issue of humility. Now, and the other thing you mentioned, it's important to tell stories to get that buy-in. So before I uh, depart from your introduction in your book, um, you told a really good story in uh, your intro about your experience leaving Tel Aviv and coming to the United States. If you don't mind, tie all that stuff together and share that story, please. Sure, of course. Uh, I think I think it was something that took me some time to reflect. So. I grew up in Tel Aviv. Um, the Israeli society is very warm, very family-oriented. There's a lot of emphasis on, on family. I'll share with you a personal uh, note. Just on one side of my family, I have over 100 cousins. I don't recognize all of them, but wow. I do have them, and they do show up to weddings. So every so often, I get to see them. Um, and, and family is very, very important. Family is, is, is the ultimate nucleus. Or, or smallest unit that you, you, you learn to appreciate and respect and, and be part of and, 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 and learn to live with. And coming to America, you know, individualism and personal achievement are, are, are paramount. I mean, you, you hear that right and left, people are, you know, studying that in school and so on and so forth. There's, uh, you know, the American dream is not a family dream. It's an individual dream. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to see some, some clashes, if you may, between that, that over-individualistic, achievement-oriented culture I'm stepping into and, and, some, of the, um, and some of the values that I, I grew up uh, um, with and that I appreciated, and, and they, they were part of my character, they were part of my identity, and I had to find ways to weave the two, not give up those, those uh, family, uh, family uh, principles and values, and yet still be in a highly... Uh, achievement-oriented environment and, and bring those to, 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 to my help 
um, the biggest challenge for me was not, not to see them as a burden or as a weakness or as a flaw, but rather elevate them to be part of my achievement, but then bring other people with me as opposed to doing it myself. And I think anybody who works with me, either in large organizations like HP or in uh, startups that I've done or it's Strativity eventually when I, when I build Strativity, um, I think they would recognize that those family, those family values were part of who I am. And I'll, I'll show you just a small example or anecdote where it came to life. 2009, uh, beginning of 2009, I had a book of orders that would last me the year, so I knew I was safe uh, despite the financial challenges. Within 30 days, 90% of those orders were canceled. 90%. I was, I was, I mean, and, and, and the client said, look, it's financial crisis. We're canceling. And I had employees who came to me and they said, we know that if you're going to let us go right now, you're going to, you're going to be able to survive. Keeping us is probably more painful for you. And I said, look, I'm going to try to weather the storm with you. I'm going to try to carry that. And I do want you to remember that for the good years, when other recruiters are going to call you and try to poach you from here, remember those family values. Um, and I did manage to weather the storm with them. Uh, we had to, you know, lower some salaries and whatever, but it was a family, a family exercise as opposed to, you know, chop and kill as you usually do when you get into a financial hysteria. So that was a test for those values, and they did last, you know, one of the most horrible financial crisis in the United States. Well, look, your, your story is uh, it's a good jumping off point for me to, to want to take a break here. And, uh, but before we do, I, I just want to share with our listeners that we've been talking to um, the author of Next Is Now, a book about change, re- resilience, and his name is Lior Arusi. Um, we'll talk about how you can find him. And so far, we've just covered the introduction of his book. And, uh, and Aaron, if we're ready, we're going to go to break here. And when we get back, we're going to talk about um, chapter one, where he talks about the part one, excuse me, where he talks about identifying your change personality. And in chapter one, we're going to start with change resilience. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Tom works with leaders. Something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention. Then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when Synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at BlackhawkSpeaks.com. That's BlackhawkSpeaks.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to tom at blackhawkspeaks.com. Now, back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Welcome back. You're listening to Voice America Business Radio. And again, I am Tom Crea, your host for Your Evolving Leadership Journey. So far, we've been talking with change expert, change resilience expert, Lior Arusi, the author of Next Is Now. And we have only covered the introduction of his book. Uh, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And uh, Lior, I want to close out chap- the introduction before we get into your part one. And there are three parts to this book. Um, we'll be lucky if we get through half of part one. But um, on page 21, you talk about, you say, what's most important? Change resilient. It's not about ditching values. It's about connecting on a deeper level. So with that, let's segue into part one, which is in your book of identify your change personality and the chapter one on change resilience. And you talk about the secret ingredient, intrinsic motivation. Share a little bit about intrinsic motivation and what that means. Sure. Let me ask you a question, Tom, and uh, try, try to imagine your last flight, okay? When you boarded the flight, <laughs> sorry, in a helicopter or as a com- when I was flying myself or in an airplane, com- commercial, commercial, okay, okay, commercial Got flight, it. okay. Right. So here's my question to you: You boarded the plane, you saw a flight attendant, you departed the plane, you saw a flight attendant. Which smile was more authentic, the one when you boarded or the one when you uh, departed? Wow. Um... I never thought about that. I would think the one where I boarded. Well, most people answer the one when they departed. Oh. That's, that's, that's the beginning of the difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. When you boarded, they probably had what, what I call a union-negotiated smile. When you left, they were very happy to see you go. Uh, but that, that's the, uh, you know, the, the joke way of looking at it. There are certain things in life you cannot do unless you are intrinsically motivated. You cannot force somebody to care sincerely. You cannot force someone to smile sincerely. You cannot force somebody to be creative. Uh, You can put as many hours on creativity, but creativity, either you like it and you feel it, or it doesn't happen. Same thing, by the way, with leadership. Same thing with risk-taking and courage. You can put a number on courage. You can put a KPI and say, you know, I expect you to make 25.3 courageous decisions this year. These are all internal 
personal decision. If you like it, you'll be creative. If you care for it, you'll smile sincerely. Otherwise, you're just going to have a fake smile that will probably irritate the person that you're dealing with. So we need to recognize that above processes, above the basic, there is a whole realm of personal choices that we make. They all come from an intrinsic motivation. Either you believe and you want to do it or you don't. And if you don't, there's no amount of money in the world that can give you an incentive to perform them. And if you do, you can work nonprofit and you would still, you know, do that because you believe in the mission. You believe in the purpose. There is something personal in you, in your value system, in why you exist and what you stand for that makes you want to go and do those things. And when we talked earlier about the, the leader that's supposed to inspire people, part of their job is to connect to that intrinsic motivation in people, that value system, and call them to join a movement, bring their values into what they are trying to achieve. Right. It's, it, and it's, it's really not easy, but uh, if you can figure out what motivates the other person, and, and for me the key is, we can't motivate others, but we can inspire them. And, uh, and I'm going to just talk a little bit about a, uh, a little quadrant that I learned. And if you'd like to piggyback and share on it, great. Um, but essentially, if you were to do a two-by-two two matrix and you have positive, negative, and intrinsic or in internal or external, um, you can determine whether yeah. – he, he said these three things. These, these things essentially are this. If they're external motivators, it's either going to be positive, the carrot, or negative, the stick. And if they're internal motivators, it's ultimately going to be positive, I want to do this, or negative, I don't want to do this. And our job as leaders is to get them into that quadrant where it's positive and intrinsic, where they want to do it. Do you want to piggyback on that at all? If not, I've got another question for you. Um, no, absolutely. I think, I think sometimes we, we are, over, we are overcomplicating things, and this is a classic way of looking at it. If you motivate intrinsically, you're more likely to get the positive outcome. So think about the outcomes you're trying to get to and then work backwards to ask yourself what value should be driving it in order to get people to exactly that set of activities that you want them to be in. And if you're not getting them, one of two things are happening. Either you're not clear about the outcome you're trying to get or that you're not connecting well enough to the value system and as a result of it, you're getting people stuck in either activating extrinsically or, or not connecting at all as it is. Right, and he brings up a fast, fantastic point about the values. I mean, what drives the people on your team? If you know whether, for example, um, they're avid learners and they're interested in the theoretical or they're very regulatory or, you know, there are seven different motivators that I know and work with. Um, we won't go deep into that now, but, but if you can know and understand what drives someone, then you can help inspire them and get them to, to, to make it internal. So let's, for lack of a better way to say this, um, move on to something uh, a little more negative. Um, because as we all know, if we're trying to, uh, I'm going to use your words, instead of instituting change, we're going to institute evolution. That was your suggestion, right? So we want right. to institute. Yeah, exactly. I'm a quick learner. Well, maybe I'm not a quick learner. I'm learning. Anyway, so um, we're trying to get this evolution in our organization, but in any change prevention, any evolution prevention program, you talk about resistors. And, you know, there are some people um, that, that they're going to resist. Talk about those people. And um, I think you, you categorize them as resistors. Go ahead. 
Yes, so uh, we talk about uh, several, several personalities of resistance. One of my favorites, because it is so embedded in politics, is the silent delayers. And imagine you're sitting in a meeting and, you know, you, you just did a research that, that, that demonstrates that the company needs to go to that direction. And there's this one guy there and he's sitting all the way in the back. And as the organization is about to make a decision, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm almost all in. But, you know, if I can just, you know, if you can just run the numbers for me one more time, I want to compare female over the age, age of 55 from Seattle with moms under the age of 24 from North Miami. I just want to run it just, just to, just to make, make sure that. And the organization, sure, we'll do that additional research. And he throws the whole organization into a limbo for another three months. They come back with the results. And again, no, just to make sure. And, and you know, usually when we work with that guy, with that personality, we stop them short and said, what are you trying to achieve? What is not clear from the research we just did that you're trying to throw us off with esoteric analysis? And the truth is that that person is not connected to the change. Their job is to delay the change. They cannot, you know, in their, you know, to their face say to people, I don't want to do that. So instead, he's using these tactics of delays by sending the organization for additional research that is absolutely going nowhere. His main goal is that they'll be busy with additional research to an analysis paralysis mode that will kill the program. That's just one example. Another one, which I cited an example for my years. Hold on a second, Leo. Let me ask you a question right there yeah. and before you go into the next example. So, so we have this example of this person who's a resistor. What can the leader do to bring that person into the fold and, and make them become a part of the, the evolution? <laughs> Excellent. So, so, so the silent delayer is afraid, and most likely there is something in the plan that is threatening their position, their scope of responsibility, their KPIs. It's pointing to something that they're afraid to execute. The real question needs to be under the surface, what are the elements that are making that person resisting? It's not what they're saying. It's really much deeper than that. And what a leader should do is pull that person out of that meeting, do a one-on-one with that person, and have a heart-to-heart saying, what are you doing? And calling their bluff and saying, the research you just asked for is not going to validate anything. It's just a fringe request that is not dealing with the mainstream. So what is the real issue? But don't do it in front of everybody else because that person will dig their heels even more. Do it in a respectful space outside. Give them the ability to share their fears and everything else. And that is exactly where the leader's vulnerability should come into play as well, saying, look, we know the direction that we need to go there. Let's not stop that. We will adapt as we go. We'll build that airplane as, as we fly it. Uh, but we cannot stop the train. So a little bit of empathy, a little bit of questions that are much deeper than the surface. Don't assume that what they're asking is what they really need. What they're asking is just a mask for the truth. And you need to get deeper than that. As a leader, your first skill set is in questions. It's being able to dig deeper than the surface and get to the real issue. Right. That person is being threatened by something. 
Now, look, uh, for our listeners, what he just did is, I believe you have five of them, and we'll go at least into one more. I'm sure we have time for at least one, maybe two more examples. But uh, one of the things he, Lear, just said right now is um, it's very important that when you have an individual like that, you call him aside, back to Dale Carnegie's praise in public, criticize in private. Did I say that right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> praise in public, criticize yeah. in private. And uh, you want to do that. And and I and I, I wanted to interrupt Lior because I knew when I read the book and I wanted to make sure you understood that he goes through, I believe it's five, five different examples of the resistor. And is that right, Lior? And if yes, uh, answer that. And then give us an example of another resistor. And, and then what do you do with that resistor? Yeah, so we actually have six rejectors, okay? And okay. I will, I'll go into one that is very classic as well, which is the salesperson. So salespeople always, you know, always use the same technique to try to stop change, which is, you want me to do that? That's fine. But you need to, uh, you need to change my quota. You need to change my target. I'm not going to make my numbers because I don't know how that's going to work, and I'm not willing to risk my commission on this new thing that you're trying to, cha- to change. And they use the same blackmail system and management falls into the same exact trap because nobody wants to lose the targets. Nobody wants salespeople to miss their numbers. And salespeople are using the same technique all the time, all the time. And I gave an example in the book where my salesperson in the whole greater Chicago, when I was at HP, decided not to introduce any of the new products into his market. And he said, oh, my clients are not interested because I've been selling them for years and I know what they want and they don't want that. And that's because he was afraid of, of the change. So he was avoiding learning and studying the new product and learning and developing new, um, new, new revenue streams for, for, the, for the company. And my solution for him was, A, an honest conversation when I said, you are not going to stop us from our competitive advantage in the marketplace. You're selling old stuff, and I'm sorry if you feel that uh, your old stuff is selling very well in, in your market, but if you are not going to do that, your competitors are going to come with those solutions, and then you're going to get embarrassed even double. Second, we went and created enough PR around the product that ultimately the customers came to the salespeople saying, how come you're not talking to me about it? I'm reading about it in the press. So sometimes I needed to use other techniques to create realities on the ground and then bring the salespeople uh, into the fold because the moment they saw that the customers are asking for it, their, their whole argument, um, you know, kind of uh, was, was destroyed. So, you can't let salespeople blackmail the organization or hold it hostage and, and, and not, not open the future to their customers. But it's a classic, classic move. Well, look, we're, uh, you, again, you're listening to the Voice America Business Radio. This is another episode of Your Evolving Leadership Journey with your host, Tom Creo. We've been listening to Lear Arusi, the author of Next is Now. We have barely gotten into chapter two of his book, and he just talked about six of the resistors um, that you might face when you are attempting to institute evolution in your organization. Um, And by that, we mean change. Um, So evolution is a kinder term that uh, will uh, be less offensive to your people and and more likely to get them to respond. Now, I want to get into chapter three before we run out of time. And you talk about the secret to change resilience, and that's engagement. And you give three engagement drivers. So if you would spend a little time talking about engagement in those drivers, 
um, before we probably are going to have to have one or two more questions at most and do a wrap. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, here in this chapter, I think I'm breaking a couple of the uh, perceptions, especially around millennials and now Gen Z that are coming and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'm citing actually a study from um, Georgia Institute of Technology where, where the researchers were actually analyzing the responses to Kickstarter. So they looked at, I think, 20,000 different asks and what words and terms were used, which one got their ask and got their wish, and which one got rejected. And they were looking at the categories of, of the words to see what, what words and what terms resonated very well with people and what terms did not resonate very well with people. And the fascinating thing is that the majority of the terms fall into categories that I would consider social responsibility and impact on the world as opposed to narcissistic uh, needs. So when you try to uh, push that, that campaign with you're going to benefit from it, you're going to have this and you're going to have that, those campaigns did not do very well. The campaigns were the impact on the world, the imp and, you know, and value and purpose was part of it and helping others and helping society seem to have gone very, have done very, very well. And this is very consistent with the studies that we have done around what motivates employees. So when you look at what motivates employees, what, what really is helping them, what the drivers are helping them is, A, understanding the impact that they make on customers, the availability of tools to help them achieve that, and the line of sight uh, from their managers, knowing that the managers are going to be there to help them achieve that. So unlike, you know, work-life balance, how much benefits do I get, and all these, you know, I want more and more, I want, I want, I want, we're finding that when they see the impact that they make on people, and the killer question was, I have the tools and authority to impact the customer experience, to impact the customer. That is the killer question that can tell us if that employee is really engaged and more likely to have change resilience versus if they are not. That line of sight to see the impact that you can make on people is extremely critical, uh, and that sense of empowerment that you can make a difference. It doesn't matter. It can be a big difference. It can be a small difference, but you can make a difference. And if you have a moment, I'll give you a great story about that. No, absolutely. Look, um, tell me the story, but I also, yeah, go ahead. And then I have some more questions because I think you talked about two other areas that I want you to highlight. Go ahead. Tell the story. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a great story. I mean, we do a lot of work with automotive and a, a customer, a customer shows up at one of the snowiest days, you know, major snowstorm. She's arriving 2 p.m. flat tire. All the loaners are gone. The shuttle of the dealership is, is stuck in, in, in a snowstorm. And the, the, the service advisor is trying to help her out, but, you know, he doesn't have the tire. He doesn't have the tire in inventory. He calls the other dealerships. Nobody has the tire. He, he cannot help her. He cannot help her. And he, he was a graduate of one of our programs. And one of the things that we teach them is focus on the emotional impact. Understand the person. Get to the person first. He's noticing that she's extremely stressed. And he turns to her and he said, ma'am, why are you so stressed? What's going on? And she said, you know, my son has a soccer, uh, soccer game at 4 o'clock and I promised him to be there. And all of a sudden, his intrinsic motivation got locked because 
He's a father. She's a mother. He knows breaking the promise for a kid. You know, you told him you're going to be there. You don't want to do that. It's priceless. There's no money in the world you can do. And he's thinking, okay, now he's thinking, what is the power that I do have? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to send her out of here uh, and have her miss that. And he's thinking, he's thinking, thinking, and eventually he's, he's realizing he has the tire on a car in the showroom. He goes to the showroom. He removes the tire while everybody's watching, removes the tire, leaves the car with no tire, and installed the tire back on her car. And, and, and she started to cry. She said, no one ever treated me like that. And I spoke to him afterwards. He said, Lior, I was elated. I mean, I felt Superman. I was, it was a personal mission. I had to get her to her son's soccer game. It wasn't a flat tire. I've dealt with so many flat tires before, but now I was Superman. It was me who got her there. He didn't change the whole world, but he changed her world. You know, her world was changed. And, and that is, that is the, 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 the driver that if you get people to recognize and see it, the power that they do have and the tools that they do have, if they just think creatively, you're going to get magic happen and change resilience will happen faster than you can imagine. Well, that's a great story. And, and like we said in the beginning, you know, the stories are what resonate. Um, the interesting thing about your story, number one, I thought you were going to tell me that that he decided to just drive her or take her on the trip personally. But but no, I, I jumped to conclusions and I was wrong. Um, but look, the, where I was going, uh, you actually addressed it because uh, in your your discussion on uh, in that chapter, chapter two, I believe, where you talk about the language of change and you talk about the Kickstarter example, you then go on to talk about this compelling pattern. And there were three of four that were emphasized. You, you articulated very well the impact on others, but the other two, and you just talked about them in that story, and you might want to expand further, were selflessness and connection. Would you like to expand or, or no? Correct. Correct. At the end of the day, you know, I, I'll give you one more example. When you, talk, when, when you look at some of the studies around giving charity, if you have people buy something for themselves for, the same, for a certain amount of money or give it to charity, you see that people are giving charity the same amount of money actually are happier and feel much more rewarded than people who bought something for themselves. The, 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 the sense of selflessness, the sense of being able to, to give uh, to others is extremely, extremely powerful when it comes to when it comes to engaging with the world, be ready for the world. It's because you cannot give unless you feel that you have something. So any time that, that you're giving, you're really tapping into a part of your brain that feels strength, that feels confidence, and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what I talked about, which is focus on the emotional side. To every request, there is a rational spec and an emotional spec. The connection is connecting to the emotional spec. It's only when you connect to the emotional spec that you can help the person achieve their real goals. They often give us just the surface, but not the reality underneath that. The more you can create connection, the more you can focus on the emotional side, the more you can actually make a difference in people's lives. And if we apply to leadership, remember we talked about questions are the new tools. Ask smart questions, ask questions that will evoke the emotional and you'll be able to actually get people to the place that you want them to be. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, we only have a few more minutes left. And uh, so let me just kind of recap some things. And um, we've talked about really 
part one of Lior's book. In part two, he talks about a five-step methodology. And um, I'm, I'm going to outline these steps where he just suggests that you face it, you analyze it, you redefine it, you grow it, and you own it. And then in part three, he talks about techniques of leading change resilience. So with that, I know we don't have much time. Do you want to share anything about those last two parts of your last two, which are two thirds of your book? Um, would you like to share anything? Sure. Sure. So I, I strongly recommend, I mean, the book also has some templates that people can use to start actually doing that exercise themselves. Right. Uh, Face it, face, yeah, face it is all about understanding the rational need. What's happening in your market? What's happening in your life? Be rational about it. Analyze it is about recognizing the emotional side. You are being emotional, and it's okay. And there is actually a quick test there that you can take in order to see how you're doing on the emotional side, where you fall within the spectrum of change resilience. And it's a way that to help people kind of like sort through that don't ignore it, understand that it's there, and then you move to the next step. And in the next step, you're starting to define what is my purpose, what are my values, what are the core cause that will never change, that will allow me to then change the tools, change the practices. Um, this, step number four is all about building confidence. So practice, practice, practice. People forget that. Even the best actors, they practice before they go on stage. And yet somehow we throw our employees with no practice to go and try new things. And you know what? It's not cool and no wonder that they are resisting it. And ultimately, the last step is all about start developing your own change resilience in small little ways. Try new things, one thing every day, but kind of move toward micro actions that will get your mind, get used to I'm always changing. I'm always adapting. And you know what the easiest thing to start with is music. Explore new music. As I cite in the, in the book, uh, a Spotify research, it shows that people get stuck at the age of 33 on their style of music that they like, and they're not moving beyond that. And you know what? You need to try something new. And it, it doesn't matter if your 33 is, my, is different than my 33. Somehow after 33, whatever comes, we consider it to be crap and not real good music and not real good words. And you know what? Start by exploring new music, and it's another way to train the brain and the body to kind of um, uh, explore new things. Well, that's that's actually fascinating because I I don't consider myself the biggest. Uh uh, listener of music and as you say you do it before 33 and perhaps for me that might have been even 10 years earlier um, I'm just not a big listener but just recently and as a matter of fact we have a guest coming on in November his name is Bill Protzman who who specializes in music to to evoke different emotions and uh, I won't uh, try to explain that now but um, it's interesting that you bring up music so did you talk about your last section of your book part three do you want anything to say about that we got about Four more minutes left. Sure, yeah. So the, the last part is really about leaders and how they can start uh, leading that within their organization. I think the main thing and my best advice to leaders is start with yourself as people before you become leaders. We wear the suits of leaders way too quickly, and we don't really explore are we mentally ready as human beings and as employees before we are leaders. Um, and it does, it does take some, it does take some, uh, it does take some, some preparations and some soul searching and self discovery. Uh, I, um, I cite an interview that I did with Steve Cannon, uh, uh, who was at Mercedes Benz at the time, the CEO. And, and, uh, you know, we went together to a major transformation, 25,000 employees all over the country. 
And his best advice was control the story. You, you don't know what's going to happen, and you need to be comfortable with that. And, and things will evolve. Things will shift. You'll correct as you go. But as long as you control the story, as long as the story is clear to everybody else, as long as you are the number one storyteller, then we are all going to do well. Just keep them focused on the story, and they will adapt naturally. And one of the things that I've experienced with him is when we started to see what employees actually did when the story was clear and we were, we were honest with them, it was way beyond anything that we have expected. I mean, they've exceeded our expectations. And we were sitting there say, saying, I can't believe they can do that. And you know what we learned from all of that? We learned one thing. People are withholding their exceptional performance until their intrinsic motivation will be activated. Our job is to activate their intrinsic motivation. They'll activate their exceptional. Yeah, part of what I just heard you say, and uh, hopefully I don't misparaphrase, but uh, you need to be authentic. Um, you need to have integrity. Uh, we've got a couple. And then when you do those things, you start building trust. And when you build trust, you uh, will get people to respond. Look, we only have less than a couple minutes left. Tell us a little bit about how the listener can find you. Um, what Again, the name of your book, it's, uh, it's Next Is Now. I highly recommend it. And it's about change resilience. So how do we find Lior Arusi? Thank you. Best way to find me is in one of two places. Strativity.com is the website that, uh, you know, this is the company that I founded. Uh, Strativity, you take strategy and creativity, you just mesh it together and you'll find Strativity.com. We specialize in business transformation, small companies, large companies. Um, it's a fascinating world for us and we always take the challenge. Uh, those, those who want me for um, keynotes and so on can find me on leorarusi.com. That's the source for uh, those type of uh, presentations and discussions. Obviously, Next is Now is my latest book. I've published eight of them, um, and uh, it's available on Amazon and all the other uh, online retailers. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we only have a little more than a minute. Now, let me just recap everything. Today, you've been listening to Leor Arusi, the author of Next is Now, and you can find everything regarding this show, Your Evolving Leadership Journey, at that website, yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. And when you go there, you'll see our past guests, you'll see Lior's smiling face, and I actually have uh, links to his website, to his book, um, and all the various guests we have on this show that are going to help you with your leadership journey. So again, uh, our show airs every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and again, re-airs at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So Next week, we're going to be speaking with Brad Deutzer, the author of Leading Clarity, and he'll Leading Clarity, excuse me, and he has some specific insights as well. So, to wrap up, thank you, Lior. I really appreciate your time. It's been a uh, value for our listeners, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for our listeners. I hope you're back next week to listen some more and find us at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.